I'm Julianne DeLynn Hatton, and you're listening to Faith and Reason on the Mormon Faircast. This series will discuss the Prophet Joseph Smith and the authenticity of the gospel he restored. I'll be speaking with Michael R. Ash, author of the book of Faith and Reason, 80 Evidences Supporting the Prophet Joseph Smith. Welcome, Michael Ash. Hi, Julianne. Today we'll be talking about Salvation for the Dead from your book of Faith and Reason, 80 Evidences Supporting the Prophet Joseph Smith. Yes, yeah, that's the topic. What Bible verses support Salvation for the Dead? Well, there's several that support it. Uh, it's, it's interesting because there's not, like, super direct references but if you understand the verses within context and, and uh, kind of other things that are going on with other verses, then all of a sudden it starts, uh, a picture starts appearing. We, we have, for instance, a very common scripture, John 3, 5, uh, where you know, Jesus says that uh, you know, mankind, humankind, must be baptized. Uh, and he says he, that you cannot enter to the kingdom of God unless you're baptized and uh, receive the Holy Ghost. Um, you know, we read, of course, the same thing in, in Mark, often quote, he says, he that believeth, believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. So uh, from a Christian standpoint, whether you're LDS Christian or non-LDS Christian, the baptism or some form of acceptance, a lot of churches now don't do a formal baptism, but, but that was once believed to be a very important part of becoming a Christian. And it's a sign, obviously, of an acceptance, and so most churches take that as as uh, if you're either believed, you're saved. If you're if you don't believe and not baptized, then you're damned. So it's an either or type thing. But this ties right into uh, understanding a little more about the salvation of the dead. And, and, and one, I think, important point to make here is that a lot of times Latter Day Saints are accused of being a very uh, closed group, and, and that we, um, you know, only believe that Mormons go to heaven, and that anybody that's not Mormon doesn't go to heaven or is not saved. And kind of that's kind of the picture that's painted sometimes by our critics. That is a significant misperception about our church. Yeah, it really it really is. And, and for those that explore our theology, uh, they come away really understanding that we have a very a liberal and universal view of salvation that that God as our father wants all of his children to return and so he's not going to punish those who haven't had the opportunity um, whether it's because it's been geographically or, or maybe they haven't lived in a time when the church was preached or maybe they didn't have the mental or physical capacity or or you know had some sort of um, things in their life uh, that, that prevented them from being able to accept the church. And, and so, you know, as Latter-day Saints, we believe that, that uh, the Lord is going to allow all people opportunities, and sometimes those opportunities extend into the next life. And, of course, that's where salvation of the, of the dead comes in, where, whereas the traditional Christian, if you, if you base it on um, some of the creeds and, and uh, earlier, like I said, some Protestants are kind of moving away more, uh, almost to a, uh, a type of, I guess, universalism where, where um, some don't even believe in, in heaven or hell or much, you know, more of an afterlife where everybody goes and is happy. But on traditional Christian view, if you either 
believe you're saved and if you don't believe you're damned, that makes a pretty hard line, a much harder line than the Latter-day Saints have. And so, like I said, our, our theology is much more generous. It certainly is. Yeah, I don't think we're given credit for that often enough. You refer to the crucifixion. You want to tell that story? Yeah, so it's it's one that, of course, everybody has heard when Jesus was on the cross and, and he was between two thieves and, uh, um, you know, one was giving Jesus a hard time and and the the other thief said, you know, hey, leave him alone. You know, we deserve to be here, but he, you know, hasn't done the bad things that we've done. And in, in Luke 23, 43, Jesus is uh, recorded to have responded to that one thief that kind of stuck up for him. He said, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And, and again, for non-Latter-day Saint Christians, that seems to support the belief in um, like an instant acceptance, uh, and that's all you need to enter into heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and that sa- sounds good from the surface, but there's a problem with that when we put it in the context of the entire New Testament. Uh, because when Jesus, after he died, and he was you know laid dead for three days, and he met Mary in the garden, he said, and this is from John 2017, touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend to my father and your father and to my God and your God. So what you're saying is that if he had gone to paradise or heaven, why would he say upon meeting Mary, I've not yet ascended to my father? Exactly. Exactly. So so he tells the thief, I'll be with you this day in paradise, but Jesus himself had not been to how we interpret paradise. Paradise, we think, okay, that's heaven. So where were they? What is paradise? Where were Jesus and the thief during those three days if Jesus had not yet been to heaven? And of course, you mentioned in your book that Christians have been arguing about this for centuries. Exactly, because it's a confusing text based on traditional Christian theology, because, uh, you know, at least in in modern churches and, and churches from pretty much uh, you know several hundred years before Joseph Smith even until now, it's believed again in that uh, you know you got heaven and hell, you die, you, you, there's a judgment right away. You go to one or the other, and that something somehow this this uh, thief was allowed into paradise because of his acceptance of Christ on the cross. But that's not what we find. Uh, it doesn't make sense in the New Testament. So something else must be going on here. And why don't you tell us what that is? Well, and that's where uh, modern revelation comes in handy, is that uh, we believe as Latter-day Saints that there is a spirit prison, a spirit paradise, and that the deceased go to these places prior to what ends up being the final judgment and, and, and uh, to the, the different kingdoms, as we'll talk about in our, in our next podcast. And when we have a, a location that Jesus could be and that the thief could be in, all of a sudden LDS theology and early Christian theology, the teachings that we find shortly after the New Testament church that are still, some of these uh, teachings still in existence, all of a sudden these pieces come together and uh, support LDS teaching that there was this uh, spirit world. 
Describe the spirit world. Well, so this would have been a place, again, where the dead would have been, and um, it's it's like a waiting chamber, I guess. Uh, and we talked about in a past uh, podcast how there apparently was a waiting chamber for a pre-mortal existence of people coming to Earth. Well, uh, the same thing seems to be taking place for those who were dying. And there's a number of early Christian writings that talk about this uh, spirit place. In fact, um, the, the word Hades is often mentioned uh, in the scriptures, and, and that doesn't necessarily, uh, it means a spirit world. It's not interpreted as, uh, you know, as hell, as, as we often think today. When we think Hades, you think of, you know, some of the things you might see on TV with the devil and the pitchfork. And of course, you know, that's not, not theology pretty much in, in most religions, but nevertheless that, you know, we have just our culturally ingrained uh, images that pop to mind. Um, but the, the early Christians believed that Christ descended into the spirit world, and it was there was no special term applied often to this place other than sometimes Hades, but it was not heaven and it was not hell. Um, and, uh, you know, in First uh, Peter it talks about how there were these people waiting from the times of Noah, the days of Noah, in fact, that, that seemed to be waiting in this uh, um, spirit world as well. And... Non-LDS scholars have noticed this uh, from earliest early Christian teachings also. For instance, non-Mormon J.A. McCulloch, he has gathered a number of examples from ancient literature that talks about Christ preaching to the dead in the spirit world. That's interesting. Yeah. So, so if you think there's this prisoner there who seems to be wanting to accept Christ, well, it makes sense all of a sudden they could be together as he's teaching them, or maybe gathering, as LDS have been taught, gathering his, um, uh, I, wouldn't, I guess forces isn't maybe the best word, but gathering some of the members that were also there in the spirit world that were believers to help him do this type of teaching. There's a non-LDS uh, Carl Schmidt that, and Hugh Nibley has written about this, who has taught and, and written that that one of the main themes of Christ's teaching during his ministry uh, was during the ministry in the spirit world. In other words, there's a lot of writings, again, that point to this. Clement of Alexandria, he's a, a very well-known writer among uh, scholars from our early Christianity, and he says that uh, Christ went to Hades, again, being the spirit world, for no other purpose than to preach the gospel. So where does baptism for the dead come in? Well, because we uh, believe the words of Christ, that you have to be baptized in order to be saved, as the rest of the world would call it, and, and, and for us, you know, eventually lead into exaltation. We believe that that's part of the process. Baptism for the dead, of course, from an LDS standpoint, is uh, by proxy. Describe what that is, because to someone who is not a member of the Church, that sounds very strange. Right. So it's... Uh, it's by proxy, of course, means that you're standing in place of somebody else. And so um, there's a baptism going on between two living people in an LDS temple, and the person being baptized is standing in, uh, in place for somebody who is already deceased and no longer has a physical body um, and couldn't obviously be physically baptized themselves. So it's just like you'd have a baptism in a Mormon building. It's in water, there's a font, and there's two people, and one is submersed under the water. Nothing more, nothing less. 
That's exactly right. And like I said, it's just that you're doing it uh, in behalf of somebody else. It's almost like, um, you know, in, in uh, the legal world, you have uh, a power of attorney. You, you might be able to sign something as a legal document, even though you are not the person. But if you have the power of authority from a parent or somebody that, that's unable to sign it, you're able to do that signing for them. Great example. Thank you. So, yeah, it, so it's, it's a proxy. It's standing in place, and that's exactly what we believe as Latter-day Saints is that everybody has to be baptized, and so everybody will have the opportunity, even if they're physically, it's not happening to them. And so then the person that's in the spirit world, um, they're not automatically sealed by the baptism. It's just that it was done in their behalf, and so then they have the opportunity to either accept or reject uh that baptism is binding upon them. And that's why Latter-day Saints built so many temples. Exactly. We're up to 150 now, right? That's incredible, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. Are we stretching to say that there is a line in the Bible about baptism for the dead? No, there is one that sticks out particularly, and it's been a thorn in the side, again, of non-LDS uh, scholars for many years. Uh, Paul, who's writing in uh, 1 Corinthians, he says, Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead, if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? Uh, and this has been a very difficult passage, um, and, and a lot of non-LDS scholars have tried to brush it aside, is that maybe he's talking about pagan practices or, or, or whatever, but most non-LDS scholars today agree that uh, baptism by proxy for the deceased was happening by true Christians, by practicing Christians in Paul's day, and that's what he's referring to. And didn't Joseph Smith instigate baptism for the dead? Yes, he, he was taught of the uh, practice, the importance of it, and I believe it was in the Nauvoo period when uh, baptism of the dead was uh, brought back in. And, of course, now that, uh, as you mentioned, big part of the reason why temples are being built everywhere is partially for baptism of the dead as well as other saving ordinances, but it all begins with that point. Just like for a living Latter-day Saint, baptism is the first step as we renew our sacraments every week. We take upon ourselves the name of, of Christ, and that's really what makes us all Christians. Thank you, Michael Ash. Thank you, Julianne. Thanks for listening to Faith and Reason on the Mormon Faircast. I'm your host, Julianne Delin Hatton, inviting you to keep the faith. Michael R. Ash is the author of the book, Shaken Faith Syndrome, Strengthening One's Testimony in the Face of Criticism and Doubt, as well as the book of Faith and Reason, 80 Evidences Supporting the Prophet Joseph Smith. Faith and Reason is produced by Tom Hatton with music courtesy of Arthur Hatton. The opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of Fair Mormon or The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You can support this podcast by subscribing to it in iTunes and by rating it and writing a review. Questions or comments can be sent to podcast at fairmormon.org or you may join the conversation at fairblog.org. 